wonders and miracles in front of your eyes. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you sent before us many holy and righteous women and men who have shared and lived your message of grace, love, and peace. They show us your way lived through their lives, the lives of everyday people. They confirm for us that this is a message for everyone. Be with us now as we learn of your servant, Stephen, and what he has to teach us through his life and death. In Christ's name, amen. When was the last time you thought about the first time you heard about Jesus? For some of you, you grew up in the church. For some of you, you grew up in Christian homes and Jesus has been a part of your life, some part of your life, for most of your life. For some, like myself, maybe you started in the church, you drifted away, you came back. And for some, maybe you came to Christ in a serious way much later in life. Do you ever think about how that faith was transmitted to you? Do you ever think about what it's taken over the last 2,000 years for that message to reach us still? It's easy to say, well, God makes it happen. And that's true, but God doesn't work in isolation. He partners with us, and sometimes that partnership doesn't seem fair or easy, or for that matter, bloodless. Much blood has been spilled to ensure the survival and continuation of this faith we call Christianity. We still encounter it today, thinking of our sisters and brothers in Syria and other parts of the world. I want today to give us pause and cause to consider what it has taken to get us the message today. We'll do this by delving into the brief but pivotal story of Stephen the first martyr of the Christian church. To talk about the life of Stephen, we need to remind ourselves where we are in the story of Scripture when we encounter him. Through the word, earth and the heavens were created and life began. The curse entered the world and so did death. The covenants of Abraham and Moses were established, leading to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humble and meek as a baby was he born, 33 years did he live, teaching and ministering to those he encountered, preaching of the kingdom of God and encouraging all to follow him to a better way. He was then arrested, condemned to death. Three three days later, he rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. His life's work and message were his legacy to the church. It was entrusted to them and through Pentecost, the church began. As the message developed, mission developed, it became clear that the apostles couldn't and shouldn't do everything. So they appointed deacons, of which the first, one of the first was Stephen. Now we don't know a lot about Stephen, but what we do know is quite powerful, and his story is very important and pivotal to the spread of the gospel. As soon as Stephen is commissioned by the apostles, he is described as a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, a man who is full of grace and power, who performed many wonders and signs in his ministry to widows. 
It was not long, however, before he drew the negative attention of the Jewish leaders and brought to trial on false charges. They described, though, his face as being as bright as an angel's. The persecution of Stephen is a wonderful example of a believer who listened to his master and trusted the teaching he had received. In the Gospel of Luke, it records Jesus saying as a warning, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. When pressed to refute the charges against him, Stephen didn't so much offer up a defense as he did a witness. His speech is masterful and leads us through the stories of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. He reminds them that God did what God did through each of these men. He talks about our ancestors, our people, how Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us, how our ancestors refused to listen to Moses Further, he reminds them that it is again our ancestors who carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. He is constantly including himself in the story, our ancestors, our people. Then he drops the the bombshell and signs his own death warrant. The Jewish system being completely dependent on the temple system, but God is revealed through Jesus is a boundless God. God's love is so great that he circumvented the temple system and came to earth to bring salvation to his creation. Stephen says, The Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Then quotes the prophet Isaiah, says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Cue the fireworks. Stephen has just used their own scriptures against them. This is a direct challenge to their system. But wait, he's not done yet. He is a man full of grace, spirit, and power, and he hasn't even gotten to Jesus yet. Here, though, we see a change in Stephen's emphasis. No longer is he talking about our, our ancestors, our people. As one who has accepted Christ's message, he knows the rest does not apply to him. He continues and says, you stubborn people, some translations will say stiff-necked, you stubborn people, you are heathens. Stephen is not interested in making friends. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. In Greek, the word heathen can also be translated circumcised. So think about that. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Now remember, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant and an absolute central component of their faith. He was now accusing them of being surface-level believers, that their circumcision was literally only skin deep. It did not penetrate their heart. We would hear similar words from Paul, say in Philippians, when he writes, 
for we who worship for we who worship by the spirit of god are the ones who are truly circumcised we rely on what christ jesus has done for us we put no confidence in human effort or in romans but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from god must you forever resist the Holy Spirit. Your ancestors did, and so do you. Name the one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, when you betray, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law. You resist, you persecute, they killed, you betrayed, you disobeyed God's law, you are heathens. Stephen clearly was not interested in talking himself out of these charges or his impending fate. He had submitted himself totally and completely to the will of God, the spreading of the gospel and calling the Jews to repentance. He was trying to save them. Stephen was directly the pointing the finger of guilt away from him and back at them. He was calling them to a life free from the temple system, free from following strict laws, free from a limiting, limiting view of God to following the God of boundless love, to the truth that God is love as personified in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Stephen was standing trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the council, the high court. So we might expect that what might come next would be the benefit, the result of a careful thought and deliberation. In fact, to skip to the end for a moment, Stephen's death does not appear to have been an official judgment, but the result of a mob mentality. We know this because it does not appear that under Roman rule, the Jews had the authority to assign some of the death penalty. In John 8.31, when they drag Jesus in front of Pilate, and he says, do it yourself. And he says, we have no right to execute anyone. And thus the death of Stephen becomes a mob murder rather than a state execution. Stephen is granted a great comfort by God when he looks up and sees the glory of God and sees Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. It is curious, though, that Jesus is standing. Normally, when he's seen by the side of the Father, he is sitting is this just a different way of depicting it? Is he standing to welcome his good and faithful servant home? Or perhaps is he calling back to the vision of Son of Man in Daniel? Daniel reads, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heavens, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom of one, which is, will not be destroyed. In Daniel, the Son of Man is uh, generally depicted as a judge. Um, and as Jesus also describes himself, is standing in judgment. And if this is correct, Stephen's vision may mean that Jesus is standing in judgment of Stephen's accusers. So no wonder then that Stephen's accusers become all the more enraged when he told them what he saw. Look, 
I see the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Do they fear the judgment of God? They rush Stephen, taking off their own clothes, presumably to get a better throwing arm, and began stoning Stephen, careful to ensure that they did so outside the walls of the holy city. Stephen's life, once again, parallels that of Christ. In his anguish, in his pain, he managed to get out the prayer. And remember, in Scripture, I, I wish back in biblical times I had ellipses. Because when we read this now all as one sentence, it sounds very holy and peaceful. And Stephen's on his knees praying. He's getting pelted by rocks all over his body, his chest, his back, his head. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Then he died. But with his death, God was not defeated. His plan that all would be saved would not be derailed. He used this moment. With this event, the first great persecution of the church began. The chief persecutor, a man named Saul. Saul thought nothing of Stephen's death, and it seemed to embolden him and energize him to pursue his duties with vicious cruelty and vengeful anger. What happens next is perhaps one of the most awesome and amazing bits of God's story in the early church. One of the reasons I love Stephen's story so much. After Stephen died, after the persecution began, the believers, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the believers were scattered. The Greek word here used for scattered is more reminiscent of scattering seed around a garden. The believers were not dispersed to exile, dispersed with no purpose. God was distributing his people through a wider world. Perhaps like a mustard seed. As Jesus is recorded saying in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed his field, which indeed is smaller than all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. The grains of mustard seed that were the early church were forcibly distributed through God's creation. The enemy was not going to win. Indeed, this is an amazing example of using the enemy's tactics against themselves. The seeds were spread and were planted. The gospel was spoken far and wide to eager ears. Evil spirits were cast out screaming, and the paralyzed and lame were healed. And many believed and were baptized. And there was great joy. And in the end, of course, Saul himself, the great persecutor of the church, came to know Jesus Christ and became, through his letters and his uh, work, one of our greatest evangelists. And through his letters has ensured the succession of this teaching down through time. St. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, did not die for nothing. His death was the catalyst for the spreading of the gospel, defeating all the enemy's designs. He also helped usher in one of the greatest evangelists of the New Testament, St. Paul. Stephen trusted in the legacy of Christ. He trusted in his teachings and message. Christ's legacy of love inspired Stephen to serve widows, to exalt the name of Christ even unto death. Even his death with his plea that his murderers not be judged 
for their actions, he was emulating Christ. To all the apostles, disciples, and believers who we read about in Scripture, we owe our thanks. To the early church who stewarded the faith and the Scriptures down through the ages, so that 2,000 years later we can be here living this faith, we owe our thanks. To the preachers of old, down through, down to those who passed the faith on to us, we owe thanks. The faith depends on no one person, but an unbroken chain of disciples filled with the Spirit, who have faithfully, as faithfully as they could, and with the stewardship of the Holy Spirit, passed on the faith from generation to generation. The question for us today is simple. In all the ways that we can live out our faith, in all that Christ has taught us, are we recognizing and honoring our past? Do we live in a way that honors our heritage, the blood shed by the apostles, the witness of the martyrs past and present? That is our call, to continue to pass the faith brought by the blood of Christ and those who have come before us down to the next generation and to encourage each other as we run the race. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Go in peace.